0: My name is Don Giller. You may know me as Mason from the TV series, The Lives of Lauren Green. You're watching a very special episode of the Letterman Podcast. A look back at 100 wonderful years. 100
1: wonderful episodes.
2: Pants proudly presents The
3: Late Show with David Letterman.
2: Worldwide Pants, the most trusted name in pants and entertainment and pants.
4: We, we all believed in, in Letterman. We all believed in his talent. We all believed in his vision. And eventually we all kind of understood what he was trying to do with the show. And despite the fact, and and look, Letterman had reverence for show business also. Absolutely. You know, he, he loved Carson. He loved, you know, he was a big movie fan. He, you know, Letterman was, was a very learned guy in, in, in the business. Yeah. and you know, knew all the agents, you know, he never let on that he was, but, you know, in the beginning, he had a hustle like everybody else. Yeah, so, so, you know, I think he had a lot of respect for the business, but then we realized yeah. we wanted to deconstruct the business. Yeah. And, and once we all kind of got that, that was the mission, we, we just loved it. What could be more fun, you know, and Hal was the leader of it. Hal was the greatest at it, <laughs> you know, between Merrill and Hal, yeah, you know, Hal did visually what what Merrill was doing on on paper. Yeah, now we I I always looked at Hal like another writer on the show, except he was looking for the visual joke.
1: I felt like I was like so fortunate to have followed and and been around on a daily basis. Merrill Marco, who really yes. was the uh, she she was the uh, she was the uh, uh, Egyptian overseer at the uh, base <laughs> of the uh, pyramids, and Jim Downey, and well, actually all the writers. I, I I just thought everyone in in your twenties, you know, you think that was some golden age. But I've been on other writing staffs, and they're all interesting and and fun in their different way. But the the Letterman group still seems to me to be a special golden group that was really trying to make each other laugh and do unusual things, not for any. Credit or groundbreaking thing, but just because they could, and no one was yeah. bothering us too much from the network or anything. So um yes, uh, we all uh, stand on the uh, shoulders of giants so that we could see that uh, those last uh, four weeks, six weeks of the show. It was
5: it
6: was it was nice because you hear like I never worked at Saturday Night Live, but like you often hear that it's kind of a cutthroat environment. And mm-hmm. and um, I, I I mean I don't know if it's it's testimony to having to do a show every day like like at some point you're going to need favors from everyone on staff just because like there's just so much chaos and 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 and, you know and and so like it was really really a nice place to work like everyone really looked out for each other and like that's why you know i stayed there a ridiculously long time you know i was probably there total of like 17 years which is crazy in tv to stay someplace that long but the reason is is because you know i mean that's they, they became my friends and I ended up, you know, marrying a woman who, who worked there. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, it, it was really a great environment. I think people in general are very protective of, of Dave. Yep. And of all of us. Yep. You know, and, and you know, regardless of the joke that I started with, um, it was not a hellhole. No, I've worked in really bad fucking shows and bad. It was jobs. a
7: family, Fred, a generational family, by the way. It was
6: it was weird. It was weird that. Yeah. And there were people who were like mad at each other and some yeah. people, you know, like every uh, any family, <laughs> absolutely, like any family. But uh, again, because of who we were and what point in our careers, we were making ourselves up as much as we were making the show up.
2: I I do have one about maybe something that, a reason something inspires uh, uh, such uh, fandom is, it's like the usual business of show business is, okay, try to find out what people want and give it to them. You know, just uh, say, what what did they like before? Well, let's package it and give that to them. And every now and then uh, you give people something they didn't know they wanted. Yes. And that was very much, you know, that was very much the Beatles. Well, they were great. They were better than everybody before. Or since, but also, wait a minute—they're British. They got long hair. They're wearing suits. There's four of them. Yep. They're doing driving rock and roll with these devastating block harmonies. How how are you going to see that come? And and you can't. And it's just and everybody said, okay, if you give them something that what they want that they didn't know they wanted, yep. then they'll follow you anywhere. You, you've opened up a new world to them, and Letterman. We weren't the Beatles, needless to say, but 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 uh, uh, still, everybody saw this thing that, as we talked about, wait a minute, this is a touch. This is familiar, and yet everything's wrong, and the wrongness <laughs> makes it right. Somehow, Dave was his genius was able to synthesize yeah. these contradictory elements for those guys to, to go work at Letterman, it wasn't just thinking, uh, oh, I'd like to do something like that. No, I'd like to do exactly that. When Letterman retired, Conan wrote uh, an essay uh, about when the show first came on, and he said something to the effect of, everything was wrong. Yes. Uh, and yet, it was all right, and what, uh, what he meant, it's sort of like, okay, Letterman is, he's nice looking, but he's got a gap in his teeth, and he's wearing a suit like a talk show host but he's also got sneakers on yes and just there were there were just contradictions abounded that uh uh he he seemed well just just that someone who uh seemed averse to backslapping. yes and uh had wanted the the schmooziest job there was <laughs> yes to be a talk show host yes and every talk show host, uh, more or less, at that point, had been, you know, hey, it's great to be here. We've got some great stars. Everything is great. Celebrating
7: Dave, show business. Yeah,
2: celebrating yes, celebrating show business. And Dave, you know, would revel in the awkwardness. Would occasionally seem cranky. Which, which especially at the beginning of the show, he was—he was, he was a, a young curmudgeon. Which, <laughs> <laughs> and. and you know, he, he was parading stars out, and yet you could sort of tell he was thinking, this is a little ridiculous, isn't it? Show business. Yep. Worshipping of, of celebritydom. So, I mean, when, when he would talk on the show uh, about like, oh, you know, so many great shows with uh, uh, marvelous stars. <laughs> he would say marvelous stars. With a smirk. And it, yes, and it was so funny coming from him because you you knew it wasn't heartfelt. And, <laughs> okay, in the, the the basically the first thing I, I remember writing for the show is uh, after I got set in the office, Steve said, Hey, we do these promos every night and we would record them during a break in the show and they would toss them on the air one time during prime time. Yep. It was just a little 10 second thing. And it would just be, uh, uh, tonight on late night, uh, Charles Grodin, Terry Garr and stupid Patrick. So join it. And then just a little phrase, a, yep. a little half joke. And, uh, and I wrote, uh, so join us, won't you? The password is fun.
1: <laughs> uh, a lot of the staffers had odd uh, uh, previous careers. Yeah. Um, uh, I had written greeting cards, and in my last week at the greeting card job, the executive in charge came, in and brought me into his office and shut the door and said, uh, uh, Steve, I know you have your heart set on going to new york and seeking your fortune but i think if you stay here and keep going the way you're going you could be the next bob hammerquist <laughs> And yes i had no idea who that was it turns out he was like the top greeting card writer, a legend the legend in the greeting I, card I, I demurred i sure. demurred on that and then of course foolishly told the story to dave a year or two into our relationship friendship co-worker yeah. status well, of course, he loved the name hammerquist to begin with. He liked words that way. Yeah. But whenever I would disappoint him or fall short, that would be often, he would go, Well, <laughs> you're no hammerquist. Oh man. <laughs> oh. See, but come on, we would both laugh.
8: I don't ever say no. And 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 there's one person responsible for that, and there's another person you know, which is Steve O'Donnell. Oh wow. Um, and, and Steve O'Donnell, when I was sort of a punk intern, um I looked around and saw all these um, people who were writers on the show, mm-hmm. and thought, "Well, I'm a I'm a dramatic writer. I want to be a playwright. I, I bet I, I bet I could figure this out and crack this nut." So, <laughs> and it was I, it was a very arrogant thing to think. I mean, this was the these were the elite of the elite writers comedy at the time, and Steve O'Donnell was the head writer, and I gave him my submission packet, which I still have, and it was fucking terrible. It was really <laughs> bad, and um, uh, and you know, a lot of those writers, not a lot, but a few of them were were not very friendly. And Steve O'Donnell, who had the most coveted job in late night television or in television at yep. the time, yep. um, you know, and and has to produce a show every single day. Not this wasn't like you know, Chris Rock did won the Emmy every year and did like eight shows a year. Yep, this is you know, two hundred shows a year, and 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 the quality never can lower whatever. Mm-hmm. He took my packet and he said, I'm gonna take you to lunch. No gain for Steve O'Donnell on this at all. A nice guy thing, I didn't ask him to go to lunch. He said, I'm gonna take you to lunch. We went to Sparrow. He went oh, yeah. through page by page with me my material. And it was encouraging, but also realistic. Yeah. And I never forgot that kindness that he showed me. And and it's been my privilege to work with Steve on maybe six different shows since and, and, and hire him since then, from Rosie O'Donnell to Bonnie Hunt to Norm MacDonald to The Man Show to Jimmy Kimmel Live. He has been an, an integral part of my career um, and, and, and my life. And uh, he's a guy that I love more than anyone. And it's, it all started with him showing me kindness at a really vulnerable time in my career. So I think about Um, it all the time.
1: I will mention in a sort of back down to Earth way that I have several dozen notes from Dave scribbled on the actual typewritten pages of jokes where he did a joke and it did not go well or there was some unforeseen turn of events. Like, I remember he did a joke of mine one night
3: about Karen Carpenter. Uh, I guess you read recently in one of the major news publications about they're tightening up the test now uh, for naturalized citizens. Say you come to this country and want to become an American citizen, you can't just walk. Well, I guess you can. But you also are supposed to take a test. And uh, the the traditional questions, what about uh, President Lincoln? What about President Washington? But the new test now, they've really cracked down. You've got to be able to tell the difference between the Carpenters and Captain and Tennille. They have... <laughs> and, um, was that ugly? Was that a, a kind of a gnat no. These are just jokes, ladies and gentlemen. Now...
1: The next day, she was dead. And he circled the joke and said, I hope you're happy, Steve. <laughs> like, I, how did I? I didn't... It was... um, anyway, there could, In the right atmosphere, a failure can be as funny as a success. And that's definitely something we took to heart at all of the various Letterman incarnations.
7: Number one, Meryl
4: Marco. Genius. Genius. Yeah. Genius. The, the heart and soul of the operation. Yeah. The, the creator of the show, the creator of the sensibility. <laughs> the, the beacon behind the comedy, the beacon behind the writers that we hired, the, the tenor of everything. She was a a, she is a brilliant person. Uh, Steve O'Donnell. Steve O'Donnell was another genius. Steve O'Donnell was, you know, another guy that carried the torch, carried the sensibility. Steve is a lovely guy and a great writer, and was a great head writer. There was always an argument that he created the top ten list, and Adam Resnick was was the judge who heard me create the top 10 list. (laughs) I didn't actually create it. I had the idea. I was, we were standing in the reception area at the old show and I had just gotten a copy of people magazine who did the 10 most beautiful people in the world. Yep. I said, you know something we should do our 10, our own 10 best list. At which point Steve O'Donnell says, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll, I'll write some up. And he crafted it as the top 10 list, even though it was my suggestion that we do our own list. So Adam Resnick used to get pissed off when Steve O'Donnell would take credit <laughs> for creating. He goes, you took credit. You did it. Why don't you <laughs> tell Steve? I go, what do I care? You know, it's big Things thing. that almost sound Steve like was, Steve was great. Steve was great. Steve <laughs> yeah. had a, a, a monster of a job. It yeah. was, you know, being the head writer on that show, you know, you're administering a, a staff of 12, 15 people. You're yeah. dealing with a piece of talent who's very choosy, who likes one out of every... Fifty jokes, yeah. Uh, and then you know the deadline would always come, and 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 Steve would be, you know, it would be four thirty, and we'd be going down to the studio at five, and we'd have to load the Chiron and do whatever we had to do. Yeah. And Steve didn't have a, an act one, and it, God bless him, he'd always come up with an idea. Letterman would say, "No, that's horrible." You know, I remember once the one that that I, I remember so well was Steve said, "Let's go take a camera on the street." And we'll find a baby and we'll bring the baby up and letterman goes yeah and then what am i supposed to do what do i do with the baby do i diaper the baby and i would and, and we would do it and it would be funny letterman would be great you know it was just yep poor steve i i i adore steve me too um my boy dan kellison daniel kellison i always described and he gets pissed at me i always describe i would always describe daniel kellison as a little puppy dog oh. um He would come, and like a puppy, he'd rub his head on your leg, and you'd push him away. And he'd rub his head again on your leg, and you'd push him away. And the third time, he'd rub his head on your leg, you'd pick him up, and he'd pee on you. (laughs) Daniel was always the guy that would bug me. Let's (laughs) let so-and-so come in on a horse. Let's fly Sean Connery in on a (laughs) jetpack. And then it would fuck, something would get fucked up. And I go, Daniel, why didn't you have this? Why didn't you have that? Daniel was was the most creative segment producer we ever had. And I was a segment producer. So that's high praise. <laughs> um, Daniel always had great ideas. It was always a, a, a process getting getting there. But Daniel's a, a creative, talented, fun guy. And I'm still friends with him. And he'll get pissed at me for using the little puppy dog, but he's heard me describe it about fifty times. So he's uh, he's been on I've the show, he, the, and I've worked with Daniel since. Daniel and yeah. I, Daniel and I did the Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year awards together. We did, I think, three or four of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so he was always very good to me, Daniel.
7: Um. Yeah, I just appreciate him so much. He 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 told a version of the Madonna story on this show that was just fantastic. Um. I just, yeah, I just. So I used to blame me
4: for Madonna. Letterman, that? Letterman got pissed at me because he had heard. And and his assistant probably told him she used to squeal on everybody. But it wasn't true that I told Madonna, just get out there and say dirty things and do whatever you want. And I think Kellison maybe did it. But Letterman thought I did it and was pissed at me for months. Months didn't talk to me because he was mad at me that that I, had, I put Madonna up to it. Pete Fadovich. Heat Fadovich, uh, the funniest guy you'll ever meet, just not even trying, not even trying. He was, he was an original, he brought fun to the show, we, we loved seeing him, he would get annoying at times, but, you know, but always a, a joy to be, be with, and, you know, he had some tragedy in his life at the end, but, but was a good man, and Hal took very good care of him, and you know he would direct, and Pete was a Pete was a, a good guy. Uh, Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott was a natural. You know, started as an intern and pushed his way on the air, and always delivered, always delivered, never let us down. And and ultimately, I it, it, his pieces on the show were the, probably the biggest laughs I'd have on that show. Mm-hmm. I would just laugh my ass off at every piece he did. I just found them endlessly entertaining, uh, a, a, a genius. I mean, a, a, a true genius in his own way. And yeah, unfortunately it was the best he ever was. And that partnership between, and that trust between he and Dave, uh, you know, he hasn't recaptured it and it's it's a shame because he's so fucking talented. He's so good. Great confidence. And yeah, just the funniest shit. You know, the Morton Downey stuff, the the, the Brando, <laughs> the guy under the seats. I mean, classic, classic pieces. Yeah. And he and Adam Resnick, who, you know, is is one of the geniuses as far as I'm concerned. And when we started Worldwide Pants, Adam and I produced a show called The High Life. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember it. It was a great show on HBO. We sold it to HBO. And Adam had the vision. He wanted to do it in black and white. Mm -hmm. And HBO let us, Chris Albrecht, God bless him, let us do it in black and white. I got fired after the pilot. And I think they did 10 episodes. And it didn't do anything, but it was a genius show. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's great. Uh, Let's see
7: here. Okay, so we've talked about this person. We've talked about this person. We've talked about this person. Um, Oh, let's do uh, Madeline Smith-Burke.
4: Madeline is is a force of, of nature. Madeline yes, is Madeline's the most enthusiastic, funny who had a talent that I don't know where the fuck she got it. <laughs> she had a talent of finding the most obscure, but 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 where Madeline's, you know, there are a lot of people that can find them, but Madeline was great at vetting them and knowing how to milk it for comedy. Yeah. Madeline's a very funny, very smart woman. Uh, you know, and she she not only, you know, there are a lot of people that could find interesting creative, you know, nuts, mm-hmm. but if, if you don't create the the dialogue and you don't know how to produce it to to get the jokes, you know, that's where Madeline was brilliant. You know, she knew how and and the combination of what she fed Letterman and what Letterman did on his own, you know, was 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 genius. Yeah. And and Madeline is is terrific. I adore Madeline.
7: Yeah, fuck it. You know what? Let's finish off with uh, and oh, then no, I'm come on, in. give me
4: more names. I'm enjoying Oh, it. no
7: no no okay, well well, okay. So the one that's to me that's close to my heart, because this show wouldn't exist without him, uh, is is Shecky, Rick Sheckman.
4: Shecky was an enigma. I mean, he <laughs> in death, Shecky has proved everybody wrong. I think everybody looked at Shecky as a guy who had no life. He lived with his mother. Then when his mother passed away, he lived in that house. It was him and his films. He would work, you know, long days. And finding stock footage for the show was maybe 2% of what he did. Shecky was just everybody's pal. And Shecky had a photographic mind for that show and knew every bit, every detail. And he was like my my sidekick. Shecky, uh, you know, I used to have to pick uh, a woman named Sue Hall used to find the stupid Petricks. And, you know, she'd show us videotape and we'd decide what Petricks we'd have on. And then before the show, we'd rehearse them and it would be Sue and me. And for some reason, Shecky became a part of that operation. wasn't had nothing to do with what his job was, but I always felt comfortable having Shecky by my side yep. looking at stupid Petricks. So Shecky would say, no. And I go, really, Shecky? That's a good one. He goes, nope, nope, nope. And he was always right on with which one we'd lead when, with, which one we'd end with, and Shecky was invaluable. But, but what, what I found surprising in depth with Shecky is how broad his network is how yeah. how many true friends and dear friends he had, we always imagined him to be this lonely guy who went home at night and looked at movies, but he had such an active social life and had such a an active you know curiosity of 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 film and 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 the arts and and you know so many deep friendships with people that mattered and had such intelligent conversations and and you know Leonard Maltin writing a piece about him, Alex. You know it 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 really opened up a whole new appreciation for what what Rick was about. Yeah, I love the recognition that he got in Me death. too. It was, me too. So you know, for me, it was so oddly enough enjoyable to see. <laughs> you know, it, it made me proud of him. Uh, Speaking of success so he would you know his travel pictures where he never smiles, and it, you know, it was. He was hilarious. He He's was a, in Antarctica would, with resting bitch face. Yes, absolutely. You so wonder. He would go on vacations with Brian McAloon, who was a director and an associate yeah. director in the beginning, and they'd go on cruises. And I think, what the fuck did these guys do on these cruises? You know, I mean, are they going after women? Are they, I, I, I just never got what he was doing. You know, I always thought he was just this lonely guy, but he was just had this rich life that was so nice to see. Yeah. 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 Um. Uh, Barbara Gaines. Barbara Gaines, you know, with Kathy and with Jude and with, with yeah. Rick, they were the heart and soul of, of the operation. Yeah, You know, Barbara, you know, what I like most, and I don't talk to Barbara much and I adore her. And we used to be good friends. You know, we were the two Jews on the show. So, <laughs> you know, Barbara, I, I I love how she matured. You know, Barbara was goofy. Barbara was a fucking goofball. She and Jude would sit in that production office smoking like chimneys. It would stink. <laughs> right. And she was like a kid and everybody, yeah, Barbara and she talking in a high voice. And then all of a sudden she became, you know, the producer and the executive producer. And you know, I wasn't there to observe it firsthand, but I I I always got a kick out of how she stepped up and 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 became this this powerhouse. Well, she's she's a good woman. Don Giller. He's a fucking bum. <laughs> this guy latched on to the shows that I produce, put his own fucking name, Don's TV, whatever the fuck that is, and has co-opted my work. Don's a good guy. Don, everybody relies on Don. I always used to love seeing him outside the theater when he was a nothing. He was a little street urchin who used to hang outside the theater. But I adore Don, I'm so glad that he's part of the team after all these years.
1: After 20 years, I didn't really see him or speak to him much at all. There was a long gap between like mid 90s and 2015. Mm -hmm. It's like two weeks or so before his very last telecast of Late Show. And I had just called up and said, could I just come up and say hello? Um, and thank you and stuff like that. And his assistant said, yes. And I came up, we sat there for like two hours, but the little the little, the little, funny moment that pertains to your documentary, whoops, is right there. The funny moment yes, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. pertains to your documentaries. When I hadn't laid eyes on Letterman in two decades, he comes out and I go, uh, hi, Dave. You know, I don't really, there's not really a very good reason for me being here. And he said, come to that, Stephen. I don't have one either. And um, we <laughs> laughed over it. You know, it was kind of uh, my justified humility and his uh, kind of uh, 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 higher contrast humility. Yes. But it was fun. And we had a very nice conversation. And um, I will also say that, that uh, uh, a certain amount of, of self doubt and self-examination is probably good because yes. i think you've got to keep checking yourself Absolutely. but there is uh, there you also have to keep your eye on what you're good at and what is your the thing you do probably you know better in your own way than anyone else and uh, when the letterman show was starting up i had that feeling about that like i can do this and if if, if they don't see that i can just right for them then they're crazy but it turns out they weren't crazy or they were crazy in some other way but they did they did see the the aproponess i mean i it it was a thing i wanted to do more than anything else in my life you have high school guidance counselors maybe you yeah. get into this kind of thing Absolutely. Tell you find that thing you love and go do it i was never quite sure what it was i liked cartooning i liked writing i liked history i liked music yeah but most of the job decisions i made were like sort of 75 percent like yeah i guess so But the letterman job was something I wanted 100%.
6: If I get up in front of a group of people um, and start talking, Betsy, my wife points this out all the time. I start doing Dave's hand gestures. I start, or I start picking up, using his rhythms. And it's just because for years, I was just laser focused on this guy. Yep. Here's George Miller's joke. Um, uh, oh, this is a great way to finish was, right here. What was? What was? Yeah, yeah. What's Letterman's? And he did it on stage, so I'm not fucking with it. Uh, what? What's David Letterman's idea of foreplay? Let's get on with it, shall we? <laughs>
3: So Mike so, Chisholm, I think he's. I think he's better than Christ. Is, this is the Chisholm podcast. He's fantastic. We're doing the we Chisholm love. podcast. Mike a, Chisholm. I don't know this yeah. makes yeah, me yeah, so you, happy. You've heard his reputation. Everybody loves yeah. Mike. Everyone, Everyone has likes Mike. Think I mean, of, of the great. nicest person you know. And he's 10. nicer than. last ten or well, twenty. He, he is 20. the nicest. person. Mother Teresa, forget about no, Mike not, Chisholm. Not in the same league. Not at all. League of He's better than this strawberry, and this strawberry is delicious.
4: We used to get, we once got in trouble. Uh, I don't know if I've ever told this story to anybody. Uh, after the shows, we used to have cars waiting for us. I'd have a car, Letterman would have a car. My deal with NBC was I would get a, a and it wasn't a limo. It was, you know, a black radio. Like a town car thing. with a driver kind of a thing. Yeah, to take me one way. So I could take it home at night or I could take it to work in the morning, but I had a one-way trip every day. That was my deal. (laughs) Very generous of them. Yeah. Uh, So I always used to take it out to go out at night and, you know, go to the theater, go to restaurants and do my thing. So one night I'm leaving and it's when I, I I came down through the studio entrance right in the middle there at 30 Rock. Yep. And I walked out on the 49th street side to get my car, which was facing west. So I, I got into, I, I'm walking into the little corridor. Do you know 30 Rock? I there's, do. There's a, a small corridor on 49th street yep. and there's a single revolving door. Yep. In the corridor, I see John Gotti has a guy by the collar and is screaming at this fucking guy. You motherfucker, how do you fuck that? Blah, 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 blah. And I like stop in my tracks, right? I get into the car and my driver said, Did you see uh, Gotti with Letterman's driver? I said, What are you talking about? He goes, That's Letterman's driver. He goes, That's the guy driving Letterman home. So I, it was just when cell phones came out and I had, a, I remember I had a Motorola flip phone. And I call Letterman's office (laughs) and I go, I don't know if this concerns you, but John Gotti has the guy that's driving your car against the wall and he's screaming at him and, you know, and Letterman then gets crazy. He's going to kill me. He wants me. They're going to kill me. I'm telling you something. And of course, he didn't take that car. He got another car. But the backstory where Hal comes into it was uh, Letterman had done a joke in the monologue about the Mafia, and unbeknownst to any of us, one of the crew was friendly with John Gotti's daughter, Victoria, and Uh got gets to the show. And she was a blonde with big hair and very flashy. (laughs) So Letterman did a joke about the Mafia, not knowing that Gotti's daughter was sitting in there, and Hal being the perceptive director that he was. Right after the joke is delivered, Hal does a cutaway to Gotti's daughter.
7: Yeah.
4: After the show, the crew member comes up to me and to Hal, and he goes, "Guys, that was Gotti's daughter that you cut away to." So I said, "Well, we, you know, what are we going to do? We got to edit it out." So this was well before the the car incident. So Letterman kind of put the two together and thought "God, he's killing me because I did a cutaway. I said, Dave, we edited it out. It was never on. Yeah, but she knew and told the file. It was just a whole crazy thing. That was one of my many John Gotti. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I was going to have, ask you, did you talk to anybody? Every, he, he was, you know, the guy, uh, the godfather that was out every night. And I was out every night. You know, I, I used to go to this one restaurant, Columbus restaurant, and he was there one night. And I asked the owner of the restaurant, and I said, I want to meet Gotti. I go, Can you introduce me to him? So he goes, well, I'll have to ask him. And I see him walk over to Gotti and I he whispers to Gotti, and Gotti just goes like that. Just shakes his head, no, and goes back. He goes, oh, he's a little busy now. So yeah. but um another time I was at a club and there was this woman that I was talking to on the dance floor. And she was just a real horrible person. And I think I said to her, you fucking skank. You know, whatever I said to her. (laughs) Cut to, I'm walking out and I see she's making out with Gotti. Oh, no. I'm thinking, holy shit, I'm a dead man here. (laughs) I just just called Gotti's girlfriend a skank or whatever the hell I said to her. She was being a jerk. I start, it was like an old Abbott and Costello movie where I'm like trying to sneak against the wall and edge my way out of the place. It was at Regine's Nightclub on Park Avenue. And I'm trying to sneak out of the club without anybody seeing me. Yeah. As I get to where Gotti is, a bunch of Gotti's henchmen pick this woman out, pick her up and throw her out the front door at the a restaurant. They physically threw her out. So I say to one of the guys, I go, what was that all about? He goes, this strange girl just started making out with Gotti. And as she's kissing him, she's trying to steal his pinky ring. Oh, my God. And I'm thinking, what a great souvenir that would have been. The Godfather's (laughs) pinky ring. Are you kidding? So I lived to see another day. It was, you know, it was a great feeling.
7: That's what they call chutzpah, I think.
4: When we went to to CBS, also from being out, I became friendly with, with Bruce Cutler, who was Gotti's attorney right who was a mafioso guy you know he was a Jewish guy, but he had like a 19 inch neck with yeah. red, red tight suits you know and he was always out and I I I liked him I I always liked talking to him and we were talking about going to CBS and he wanted to make my deal for me he said, let me make you a deal for you I said Bruce <laughs> And I and and it's the one thing I regret over the years not having I I I took it so seriously because you know it was a big break it was a big show I'm I'm the executive producer finally yeah and I didn't have the the sense of irony or the sense of humor at the time to kind of say oh that'd be great go ahead Bruce make my deal go up to Brandon Tartikoff's office and scare the shit out of him you know today I would have, you know, in hindsight, it was, it was a a missed opportunity for me to have the greatest story ever. It's not a bad story to begin with. So I, I, I did not let him make my deal. (laughs) So I don't know if you'll be able to see it. Okay. I had a girlfriend who owned a restaurant in Brooklyn, uh, right across from the Brooklyn courthouse. Yep. And Gotti is on trial for murder and it was on clark street in brooklyn and for some reason i i don't know if this is standard procedure but they used to let Gotti go out with his boys for lunch he was he was in uh, up for murder i don't think he even had parole but they'd let him go oh. so he'd go to my girlfriend's little gourmet shop restaurant where you know she'd make all the food they had like four or five tables there and he would. Pay her, you know, he'd give her a thousand dollars and say, All right, we're taking over. But he insisted on doing all the cooking. He'd get behind the counter and make all the sandwiches and fry all the burgers and do whatever, you know, he loved doing it. So he did it one day, then the next day. And the whole trial, he would eat there every day. So I said, Get me a Gotti's autograph. Please get me Gotti's autograph. So she gets me an autograph. I don't know if you can make it out, it's very faint.
7: Oh yeah, no, there okay. it is, right there.
0: But basically, there it right there. what it
4: says is, Rob, you owe me one, there and in is. parentheses, the number one, and it's signed, Ungardy. <laughs> there it Rob, is. Rob, you owe me one, one. There <laughs> it <laughs>
7: is. And I heard something about you getting a little one of these from him, or something like that. He did this from across the room, or something. I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't um, remember that
4: one. Okay, well, no, but it... it. it but I had many brushes with Gotti. I, I I used to see Gotti out on the town a lot. A lot. Yep. He was a, a very visible figure in, in the 1980s and early 90s. I once saw him after I left... Le- yeah, it was after I left Letterman, I'm just thinking. I got hired by a company to go to Branson, Missouri. And... They good wanted gig. to do, this, this, this guy, this promoter, uh, with my help, we had a meeting with Monty Hall, all right? Oh. And what we wanted to do was do a live version of Let's Make a Deal in Branson, Missouri. At one of the theaters, and people would come all dressed up, and yep. we'd get a good host. You know, it wouldn't be Monty Hall or, or somebody like that, but we'd get a decent host, and we'd do a mm-hmm. show every single day, not, not televised. But do yep. a live show and people would pay to get in, whatever. Absolutely. And win big money. And, you know, we were the first to have that. Now I think they do a lot of game show things down there.
7: Yeah.
4: Or, or if there is a Branson still. So we had to go down to Branson for, for like five days. <laughs> and you fly into this little airport. And I was leaving. And I see Gotti's brother, Peter Gotti, who I had recognized. Gotti's wife, Gotti's daughter, and Gotti's son. He was in the federal penitentiary in Missouri, right by oh. Branson. So wow. they, and, and this airport was, you know, there was one gate. There was one gate. It was a little, how you know, like a little, looked like a little cabin. Had one gate and maybe, you know, 15 seats in the waiting room. And I, of course, see them, so I sit myself very yep. close to them just to eavesdrop. Yep, and all they were talking about, we can't tell them this, and we made a mistake by telling them this. And <laughs> it was great, it was great in Branson, Missouri. I have a brush with the goddies, it was terrific. The yeah,
6: American did a video, we did a secret video, so during the there, that big long writer's strike, yep, um, yeah. That went on forever. I forget. Like in the third or I believe it's like the third year of the show. Yeah. Fourth. Um and uh the mid eighties writer strike. During that time, Dave turned 40. Yeah. So we my Betsy and I and Hal and uh Lori Guthrie and uh uh Kevin Kay, um Jude, ba- Barbara Gaines, Jude Brennan, Barbara Gaines, uh started the original idea was just to tape random people on the street saying happy birthday to Dave and we cut it together and say it, send it to him. Somebody gets it in their head, "Oh, why don't we have some of Dave's friends in it?" So now we've got shots of a telephone with a microphone hooked up to it and Steve Martin calling and 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 you know, saying hi to Dave. Um and then we start combing through NBC, and there's Tom Brokaw and yeah. and uh, 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 you, you know the NBC personalities. Sure. Then it branches out into oh we could go to get the Yankees, and and so Betsy goes to Yankee Stadium with laurie Guthrie and gets Billy Martin and and George Steinbrenner. And at the same exact time, I'm getting Richard Nixon. Holy crap! So we had Nixon, uh, Mayor Koch, uh, 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 Jane Pauley, uh, all these people, and um, uh, it's like
7: you're gophers, and you've been digging and digging and digging
6: and digging and digging and digging for so long in your little hole,
7: and then you pop your head up and realize, we realize shit, we've done we a whole field realize, here. Yeah, we didn't
6: realize
4: holy yeah, the shit, impact,
6: right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and so send the tape. Yeah, we just sent the tape to Dave on his birthday. He gets it. He's home in California. Holy and uh, like a day later, I just get a phone call and and I pick up the phone. This was the day before, days before caller ID, right? Said, yeah. Hello. And he goes, Nixon, how the fuck did you get Nixon? <laughs> and here's the story. This is even better. So Nixon was in a recording studio in New York City recording some voiceover for something. He I just forget. happened to be... And- in oh, a place Frank with Gannon, recording Frank devices, Gannon. which, by Frank the way not a good Gannon, thing for right. so Frank Nixon. Gannon was a segment producer on the show. Okay, okay, okay. Frank I got you. I worked in the Nixon White House. I got gotcha. you. So, that's how we got to Nixon. So, we're all getting into an elevator after everything's all done and and everybody's kind of crowding in and Nixon's there and and the door starts to 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 close. Yeah. Um and and I got to the door a little too late and it literally slammed Nixon uh up against the, the wall of the elevator. Not too hard, but like an elevator and then it bounced back. Hard um, enough. <laughs> and Frank Forever was like, you fucking let the door slam on Nixon. You you could have reached your arm in. And I said I I I just didn't I didn't I, I, I blame my subconscious for that. I blame my unconscious self for letting the door slam. Um but yeah. I don't know how we got into that. Um, that's something that will never see matter. the light of day. It will never see the light of day. There's a couple of things that I did on remotes uh, that a will never see the light of day, and b I'll never tell you about. Okay, well, and
7: fair enough. And I've, I've they had were a really fun. They
6: were they were very. Yeah. They, it got it got very um, personal. Yeah, <laughs> or something.
4: Yeah.
7: Can you talk about Gary Shanley, talk about that for a moment? I
4: I I knew Gary, obviously. Yeah. And I was going out to L.A. for, you know, auditions or seeing somebody, some executive, I don't know who, probably <laughs> Moonves. And because yeah. um, we were doing Raymond. Now, it might have been before that. But I used to go out to Moonves and try to get him jazzed up about, about Ray Romano. And I remember having a meeting with him and saying to him, this is the guy that you're going to pull out for every press tour. This yeah. is the guy you're going to pull out for every affiliate convention. And Mubes was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do your fucking pilot. You know, <laughs> he didn't care. <laughs> he did not care at all. It was funny. <laughs> it was very funny. But uh, I was, I went out to L.A. and it was just about the time. Uh, did you remember MGM Grand Air? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was like a it was like a flying green room. It was every celebrity in the world. I remember Barry Sand telling me that he once sat next to Elizabeth Taylor on MGM, and you know <laughs> it, it was like you'd see people. So Gary was on that flight, so we sat together, and he goes, "Hey, while you're in LA, why don't you do my show?" So I said, "Well, what am I going to do?" He goes, "We'll figure something out. Don't worry." Two days later, I'm at, I'm on the stage, you know, taping the you know filming the the part. You yeah. know, on stage acting with Rip Torn, I was intimidated as all hell. I bet. <laughs> Barry didn't bother me. You know, I I was fine with him. But Rip Torn, it was intimidating having to act. Not really. I would hardly call what I did acting. But, but <laughs> it, you know, it, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And Rip Torn was very reassuring. You're doing great, kid. You're doing great. You know, it's funny.
7: But all I, around is the
4: episode day, where they, they went, they were at this award show. Yes. You remember the? I have the award right here. If you'd like. No, to. really?
7: Hold on. It's not an Emmy, but they kind of made it look like it was an Emmy. And Dave, what, and he offers it to Gary. And Gary, come on, go ahead, take it, take it.
4: What? Really? Really? Austin can confirm that this is the award. Oh, this is excellent. Oh, that's American excellent. Tele- <laughs> it's called the American Television Award, right? And it was an idea of the former late uh, uh, laughing producer, George Slaughter. And he had this idea, let's have a, an award show to compete with the Emmys. Yep. And you know, when you, when you create an award show, you have to have like, you, you, have, you have to follow all the standards and practices in the network. So you have to really have a voting body. You have to abide by certain rules. I mean, it's a whole big thing. You can't just say, ah, we're gonna give out awards. You know, it has to be the the standards and practices. So he created this award and, you know, letterman won the best show. And the, I think the only reason he went out was because Gary had this idea to do, do Larry Sanders backstage. Yep. So that was, that was the episode. <laughs> uh,
0: before this is, this is off the air before we'd go on, before the before uh, the tape started rolling, yeah. um, the band would come out and play for the audience. And I always have a a, a big supply of, of custom picks, guitar picks, and I would throw one out, one or two out into the audience, right? Cool. And it would be, you know, just picks. I don't know whether it'd be my signature picks or glow yeah. in the dark picks or whatever. <laughs> And um, they weren't always colored white until I until this thing happened. Um, I had learned that a lady had gotten hit in the eye during the warm up of the show, but because tickets were so hard to come by, she wasn't going to leave her seat. She was going to stay there for the whole duration in pain, and ended up having to go to the hospital, eye infection. And I think they were threatening to sue the show. Wow. But Dave thought it was cool. <laughs> so I kept doing it. Also, you got to admire the
7: commitment of the lady to stay there.
0: Yes. Differently, of course. Sure. I was, I was them okay. differently and, and I had a... paint you know they had them colored white after that too so and I threw them completely a different like you know not a straight on yeah anyway that's just a complete ridiculous aside
7: um I I would I'm fascinated I would love to have some of the alum on here maybe a few
6: of you at the same time and talk I'm not an alum I have coasted for years (laughs) on people thinking that I went to Harvard so it worked for me with Dave because I went to Notre Dame Okay. So where's so the lampoon? Because like,
7: you wrote for them as a pseudo. No, I wrote for the
6: national lampoon. Oh,
7: you wrote for the national
6: lampoon. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, that's part so, of the misconception. So for years, asked. for years, when people when it worked to my advantage to have people <laughs> assume I went to Harvard, I just kept my fucking mouth shut. Um, when it worked to my advantage to go, those fucking Harvard boys, I would do play that card. It worked great for me. <laughs> You wrote for the National Lampoon um under a pseudonym, right? No, I know I wrote it in my own name, but this is a good I'll tell I'll I will tell i will tell this story as quickly as I can because okay. it's a good story. Um obviously the founder, the two founders of the National Lampoon,
7: yeah,
6: uh were were, were, were um Doug Kenny and Henry Beard. Okay. And both of them were Harvard boys. Yep. And Doug was Doug was I met Doug once, but, but Doug was a fucking just, he, yeah. Our sense of humor. If you, you, you can track from animal house to, through ghostbusters. Yeah. That is the, that is mine. That is all a direct connection to the, to Doug Kenny and the National Lampoon. And to many so X, there's Doug,
7: a religious journey
6: right there. What you just said. There you that, go. So there's, Doug. there's Doug. Yeah. Doug, uh, Doug goes to Hollywood, yeah. um, makes Caddyshack. And then falls to his death tragically in Hawaii. Yeah. um uh Kevin, by the way, lived with Doug for a summer. so there you go um so so after doug um a guy named P J. L. Rourke took over the national lampoon conservative conservative humorist uh, p yeah. j. O'Rourke um and then uh uh after that, there was a guy named Jerry Sussman who basically was kind of just keeping the magazine running, okay. Jerry hired me as a copy editor um, because I could copy edit. I knew how to copy edit. I had come up in newspapers. I knew how to do that, but I also knew how to copy edit in a way that wouldn't kill the joke. Uh, Right? So if it's misspelled or there's stuff missing or whatever, I know, oh, that's a joke. That's why it's. And I'm not like somebody going like, anyway. So
3: uh, I'm pitching ideas
6: and I get a bunch of stuff on. Jerry leaves the lampoon and uh, Sean Kelly, who was one, who was one of the original National Lampoon people, and I are in a room one day. That room is probably a bar, and <laughs> we decide to create a fictional editor in chief that is a, an amalgam of all the past editor in chiefs. Oh,
7: that's genius! And we
6: called him L. Dennis Plunkett. And L. Dennis's editorials at the beginning of every issue right. were always. Uh, uh Webster defines satire as, right? They were just horribly pretentious <laughs> and terrible. And then it will begin to reveal uh how he worried about uh this was a Henry Beard reference, how he how his family never forgave Roosevelt uh for how he got us out of the depression because you know, Mama lost all of her, you know, you know, Pa, Fa lost all of his, you know, fortune. Right? What a beautiful and all, device. And then when mail came in to L Dennis I would answer it and so somebody wrote in one time and said um that I also had to answer the slush pile and if there was somebody who was kind of close and like we actually wanted to reply to I would reply to them and then they'd write again and I go ah it didn't work out this time thank you so much and somebody decided that they were unhappy with the way they'd been treated by me And they wrote to L. Dennis. (laughs) L. Dennis wrote back to him and said, thank you so much for helping me get the goods on this graver guy. (laughs) I have been trying. If you could just Xerox the correspondence, I will get on this right away. Um, Then the guy Xeroxed the correspondence and sent it in. And then I just got a pang of conscience and just dropped it. No! No, I thought, this is cruel this poor guy, he thinks, he thinks he's got gotten in at the lampoon now. And I said, I just sent him a kind of like, thank you very much. This is under investigation or something like that. <laughs> but I, I felt bad. I felt like, like, Oh, geez. So it's probably, you know, morning Fred felt bad about what. <laughs> yeah. Ed okay. Smith there it is. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so that was that. Another song that I love singing was a uh, week as I am.
5: By uh, Skunk and Nancy. that was one of my favorites, and it would all and all my favorites were like kickoff songs. Yeah. And by by kickoff songs, I mean the the ones that we would start the set with the first the first song yep. after the monologue would be the kickoff song.
7: Uh, there was one, and I'm gonna oh uh, this could be a, a high wire act that just I fall and fall on my face on. There was one that you did the lead vocals on that going out to commercial, um, it, it started like this bubba and then you kicked into the vocal right away after that. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? No. Okay, it doesn't matter. I'll find it and I'll send it to you because I know happen, that I know Now I want, now
5: I want ah. to know.
7: It's like, da-da, oh, da-da, da-da, and, See, then, and then you kicked right into a vocal on it um i always loved when you sang and, and, and it's, it was so uh it was so cool whenever you had a a highlight performance uh don just said that i might have been thinking of soul survivors express way to your heart no! i think that's i think that's it i think that's exactly the song actually
5: there it is and then you kick right in what did i say yeah I have been trying to get to you. There it is. Oh, Thank god. you. Oh my god. That's the moment. Right. That's, right. Oh my god. You just that's gave a... me
7: goosebumps, girl. You just put them all over me just by doing that.
5: God killer. I love you. That song, that's a song I snatched from my childhood. And and Paul let me do it. Like that that's what I meant. Like you could just ask for things and it would happen. That's why I love that gig so much. I would just pull songs that that meant something to me as a child and Next thing I know, we're doing it on television. How could you not love a gig like that? How could you not?
3: Let me quickly explain what we're doing. We're putting together a show here not for American television, so (laughs) don't let this stuff alarm you, okay? Part of what you see tonight will actually be on the air, and then there are two specific segments that will never be seen anywhere.
5: Overcoat and underpants.